So if you were getting to know somebody and maybe you went to get coffee with them and sat across the table from them and they leaned across the table and stared you in the face and just said and opened their conversation with you, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. I have money on my mind. I can never get enough. And when I walk into the building, everybody's hands go up. And they stay there. If someone sat across from you and said that, what would you do? Now, for those of you that don't know, and if you don't know, I'm sorry you don't, but that song has over 85 million views on YouTube. And in that song, you have pictures and imagery of cars, of money, of jewelry, of women, of, of all these things. And you might just happen to say that those guys have made it. Those guys have been successful. Those guys have it all. And uh, you wouldn't be alone, because most of the world views success in that way. But what about you? How would you look at someone and say, that person is successful? What are the defining elements in their life that you would look at and go, that person has clearly been successful? Or let's personalize it and go, what do you think of yourself? What do you think would actually be success in your own life? Like what things, what would be the criteria that you would line up on a piece of paper and at the end of the day go, today was a good day. I was successful. I made it happen. Things went right for me. In the first century in Rome, they had a view of success that I would say is probably very similar to us today. To be successful in Rome, first of all, you had to be a citizen. If you were a citizen of Rome, the most powerful force on the planet, you had arrived. You weren't a slave, you weren't a servant, you weren't somebody visiting, you didn't live somewhere else, but you were a citizen of Rome. You belonged. There was a type of success associated with that. Not only if you were a citizen, but, I mean, to be a citizen, you had to have some money, but prosperity was, a sim was symbolic to people of success. Your business, the things that you did, everything that you accomplished led to your prospering. So therefore, there's some success related. This la the last one, which I find fascinating because actually it really does touch home on, on, in my life, but it was security. If you as a Roman citizen were secure, and if you've been out of the country at all, and you've been to multiple countries, and I, I've, I've traveled a little bit, everywhere I go, it's the story that's the same. The high-walled houses are the, the rich people, the successful people. If you can have a high security wall and nobody can get over it, then you are successful. Not only was there security, but you had what would be considered comfort and luxury. Now, that's Rome in the first century. doesn't sound too different than today. It actually sounds exactly the same. It actually sounds pretty much what we would define and the world would define as success. We would look at somebody's influence and go, man, they are in charge of a lot of people and they have a big group of people that they hang out with who they influence, their material wealth, 
the group or the status that they're connected to, the extras that they have, the luxuries that they have, we would look at that person and go, man, they are so successful. And here's the danger. Is this our definition of success? As Christ followers, is this how we are to define success or is there something else? Do these things remain our goals, but now we just happen to be bringing Jesus along as our lucky charm? When we talk about success, do we know what it means to be successful biblically and in God's eyes? Or do we go, you know what, success is exactly what the world says, but now I have Jesus as my lucky rabbit's foot. Just bringing him along for the ride. Yeah, he makes a good point in all of this. I should do the religious thing. Jesus, I add you to this, then somehow I'm going to instantly get my blessing. Somehow I get something out of it. Now success defined, and I want you to see what success is defined as, because it's it's not in and of itself a bad thing. Success is the accomplishment of an aim or purpose. Now, this kid, we'll talk about him. He just ate a fistful of sand, but do you know he became the success kid on the internet? Like this guy's face, this, uh, is the success meme. And for those of you that don't know what memes are, this is, the, this is what we do with, with things now. We take pictures and put words over them and then define success. And this kid ultimately is the success kid on the internet. 24 socks before laundering, 24 socks after. Success. You know, posted a clever Facebook comment, got three likes, success. A goal attained, a goal achieved. This is what success is. But do Christ followers look at success in the same light as the world? Are we to look at success individually and churchwide the same way YouTube, Fortune 500, and Google might? And the answer is no. While success is not in and of itself a bad thing, nor are comfort, wealth, security, or luxuries, when we let them drive, they are very cruel masters. When we choose those things to be our goal and our purpose, you will find just how life-taking they actually are. We actually feel like they will be life-giving to us, but when you talk to somebody who's made money, how much money is enough? Just a little more, that's the answer. How much security is enough? Just a little more, that's the answer. How much comfort is enough? Just a little more, it's always just a little more, and it can be a very demanding cruel and life-taking master. In China, what's interesting is it is knowingly, work is knowingly called the second wife. You know, in Roman times, they would often make sacrifices to gods and to Caesar in order to be successful, to try and manipulate or twist the arm of their gods to get success. And in the same way today, we make sacrifices we sacrifice our families, our children, our spouses, and even our own health on the altar of success, defined in the world's terms. You know, we use phrases like it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, a rat race, a clawing our way to the front of the pack. And yet we don't see those statements dehumanizing us and making us just like the animals and being okay with those phrases, rather than being called sons and daughters of God, we would pursue this rat race. It would dehumanize us. 
that would make us nothing more than animals. This is a problem. Not just personally, but it has infiltrated the church as well. Today, the church view of success just kind of mirrors the view of success that all the people walk with. We make marketing advancements. We advertise. We sponsor an ad on Facebook. We do publicity stunts. We try to get people in the door, just like businesses would work. Numbers, results, strategies, business models all around. The very real and present danger with this mentality is that the church was not meant to boast in their abilities. You see, when we act on the model of success that the world has, it was our adjustment that made things happen. It was our work that made it successful. It was us who came up with the clever idea. It was us who came up with the clever whatever it is, and it gained us results. In fact, the church was meant to be a beacon of denying self and full reliance on our Creator. This model, this worldview of success, is not only destructive individually, but when the individuals come together as the church, and we have bought into the lie of worldly success over success in the eyes of God, that is what we begin to reflect to a world that doesn't need to see another business model or program or self-reliant people. This is why it is dangerous. But let's be honest, and I was just kind of going, you know, I, I want to I understand why I'm so drawn to the world's view of success. Well, firstly, it makes me think my efforts weren't wasted, right? Like, if there's something that is a result or something good happens, it makes me feel like, well, I didn't waste my time. I did something. I contributed, and it was worth it because I could see results. To think my efforts paid off, to think my efforts were worth something because I saw results, to think my efforts were rewarded. And you and I both know it. When we succeed at something, we like when people think highly of our abilities, right? We like it when someone says, man, that was awesome what that person did. And it paid off and it worked. Way to go them. We love attaboys. Makes sense that we'd be drawn to it. We want others to respect us and to think others will value us. So can you see why this whole view of success is really an identity issue? It's an identity crisis that we are confused by the world. We think, oh, but this is how it's supposed to be, but Jesus has other ideas for us. Why is this version of success dangerous? And this is where I started to wrestle with it. And I told my wife just, just yesterday, I'm coaching third and fourth rec league basketball. And we had our very first game. And during the game, these kids were running around, shooting the ball, throwing it up, doing all crazy stuff, and the ball magically got stuck between the backboard and the rim. You know that shot where it goes, thunk, and just sticks there? Well, it's a 10-foot rim. The referee's looking around like, how are we going to get this ball down? No one's helped. No one can get the ball down. And so I'm like, I can get that ball down. I run. I jump. I, could, I mean, I, 37-year-old legs, i got to see what I can do. And I told Doreen, and this is what happened in my brain because I'm so success-oriented. I thought, what if I jump up and hit that ball and it does not come out? And I look awful. And I fail 
at jumping up there. Not only will I have run across the court, jumped up and not gotten the ball out, but I will have landed and let my kids down, let all these rec league parents down, I'll have let myself down, I'll have let all my former teammates down, I'll have let everyone down because I couldn't get the ball off the backboard. I did get the ball off the backboard, but just so we're clear, all right? All right, no warming up either, all right? And at 37, you need to warm up before you exert yourself that way. But what was funny was, and I told Doreen, I was like, I noticed, because the ref looked over at some guys standing on the sideline. He looked over at them, and they were all like, <laughs> So even in that, I mean, it was a momentary thought of, I could fail at this and get laughed at. But it's really the danger of this world's view of success, My identity is only in succeeding. If failure is a possibility, then then I'm not going to take the risk. Because see, when we tie success or results as the world calls them to ourselves, if something doesn't go as planned and we fail, it's not just that we failed. It's that we are a failure. Correct? Like, not only did I just fail at something, but I have now taken on the identity of I am a failure at life. This is how quickly our identities can get wrapped up in the world's view of success. Not only that, but we can have an elevated view of ourselves, And you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you've worked hard, you've planned, you've succeeded, you've made the money, you've put yourself in a position, and there are other people who may not have the same things you do, you elevate yourself and go, well, I'm smarter. I planned for this. I made this decision. I worked for it. They obviously didn't. And you and I both know, you and I both know that there are people in life who have busted it in every area of their life but have never caught the break you caught. You and I both know that just because somebody's circumstances don't look like yours as successful, it does not mean they did not try. But you see, when we have the world's view of success and standard in our heart, we are quick to elevate ourselves and lower others. This is why it's so dangerous. We fear obedience to God because, man, God, you're asking me to do something crazy, and if I fail at it, I'm going to look ridiculous. The number of times I have talked to people who said, well, I thought God was telling me to do this, and I fell on my face, and it was embarrassing, so I guess I didn't hear him right. God forbid that he would use failure to shape us into his image. See, in this world's view of success, we can actually look at God and go, because we failed, he does not love us. This view of success is very dangerous, and it's identity-based at its core. There's a movie that I want to show you a clip from, and it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's colorful, it's, this, it's beautifully shot, I mean, the storyline is incredible, and Nacho Libre just makes his world uh, uh, available to us, and he is this picture of forgetting what success is. And if you don't know the story of Nacho Libre, he's, just, he's, a, he's a man, a monk, who works in an orphanage, and, and he makes the food for the monks and the children. And he sees himself in a very strange view, a lower view, again, the world's view of success, but he also finds his heart being tugged to another world of success. And so see if you can notice his language as he goes back and forth. So... Do you enjoy yourself here at the Brotherhood? The children, I love the children. They are my heart. 
But to tell you the truth, the brothers make me cook, stew and stuff all day, but they don't give me money for fresh ingredients. And they don't think I know a buttload of crap about the gospel, but I do, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Today, I saw a man in town. People were throwing daisies at him and giving him goodies. Sometimes I would like that kind of respect. Who was this man? Well, to tell you the truth, he was a luchador. Wrestling is ungodly, Ignacio. People cheer for him, but he is a false idol. Whatever. <laughs> okay, orphans, listen to me. Listen to Ignacio. I know it is fun to wrestle. A nice pile drive to the face, or a punch to the face. But you cannot do it. Because it is in the Bible not to wrestle your neighbor. So you've never wrestled? Me? No, come on, don't be crazy. Listen, I know the wrestlers get all the fancy ladies, the clothes, and the free creams and lotions. But my life is good. <laughs> really good. I get to wake up every morning at 5 a.m., make some soup. It's the best. Love it. I get to lay in a bed by myself all of my life. It's fantastic. <laughs> Nacho, I think I know someone who can help you. The Lord? No. He's a water gypsy. He knows where to find eagle eggs. Eagle eggs? I'm not listening to you. You're crazy. Nacho. I'm telling you, this is for reals. His ego ass possesses magical powers. She could become the greatest fighter who ever lived. Precious father, why have you given me this desire to wrestle and then made me such a stinky warrior? Have I focused too much on my boots and all my fame and my stretchy pants? Wait a second. Maybe you want me to fight and give everything I win to the little ones who have nothing so they can have better foods and a better life. So, you see the tension. You see the my work, my duties, my, my ability to perform is what gives me the respect or success in the eyes of the brothers and... The luchador world. It's simple and it's, it's subtle and it's heart gripping if we'll let it. Because we can see ourselves defining ourselves by a standard that we are not meant to walk by. Jesus made it really clear in the Gospels in Luke chapter 12. He said, then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Not just monetary, but every kind of greed. The thing that you're going after and you will step on, crush, push down whoever you have to, to get to it. Life is not measured by how much you own. In Matthew chapter 16, he says this, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? 
I would say this is kind of in the, 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 the likings of, hey, do you do realize you're not just an animal meant for a rat race, meant to claw your way to the top of the front of the pack? Are you willing to lose your own soul? And Jesus says, don't gain the world, because in that gaining, you will lose yourself. I can see the looks on the faces of the people as Jesus unlearned them, as he dealt directly with the popular thoughts. If our definition of success is results-based, like I got to see it, I got to see it, I got to experience it, I got to do it, we may have to redefine what success is. And I, I do believe the scriptures do that for us. We don't have to come up with our own. But the real question becomes, who are we going to let define success, man or God? That's going to be the battle we fight till the day this flesh is done. The battle we will fight is who are we going to trust? Do we trust the world's definition of success or do we trust God's definition of success? What does biblical success look like? And, I, and, and, and this is just, you, you'd, you'd think it was a complicated equation, but it's, it's actually very simple. And in the Acts chapter 2 church that everybody wants, everybody wants the Acts 2 church, everybody wants to be a part of a church that just does what Acts chapter 2 does. Well, you can't have the Acts chapter 2 without the Acts chapter 2 Holy Spirit powering it or the Acts chapter 2 Jesus that's proclaimed in it. But everybody just wants a community where everybody cares about each other. You know that's not natural. Do you understand that when you ask for an Acts 2 church without the power to do it, the gospel that saves us, you can't have an Acts 2 church. You'll just have a bunch of people finding out that they're all selfish and then they'll all disband. And they'll go do it again somewhere else. So listen to this simple yet profound yet incredibly difficult description of success. Starting in verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It's not complicated. It's not difficult but it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible without a right understanding of what Jesus has done, what the power of the Holy Spirit causes the church to be sent out. But it starts, we see, with a love and a desire to obey God's word. Is it any wonder that the word of God is what is consistently under attack in our generation? It's consistently being smashed and slammed and putting fiction, put in fiction set, uh, sections at bookstores. It's causing us to doubt. It's causing us to go, well, forget about God's word. I'm just going to love people. It's impossible to love the people that Jesus told us to love without his power, without his word, without his life, death, and resurrection. But we're trying to live the Christian life basically without Jesus. This becomes a problem because we become easily swayed by the ways of the world. Success for the believer is a desire to know the word of God and to put it into practice. When I put my head down on the pillow, did I honor the Lord loving his word and his commands? Do I know the word well enough to know that my salvation doesn't stand on my obedience to it or failure to obey it? 
When I'm saying knowing the whole word, I'm talking about knowing the whole word. I'm talking about knowing the whole story that Jesus' perfection, Jesus' success actually became my success the moment I put my trust in him. I'm no longer defined by my sins, by my failures, by my, my, by my sins of not doing the right thing or by my sins of, of doing the wrong thing. I'm not defined by that. The identity issue of am I a success, it's not the question anymore. Jesus is success. The cross covers me. Do you know the word well enough to know that even when you fail to obey it, he has still covered you? Do you know the word well enough that even though you obey it to the best of your ability, it's not enough to save you? It's not enough to make you right with God. What Jesus has done is enough. You're covered by it. Proverbs chapter 3 says this, My child, never forget the things I have taught you. Store my commands in your heart. If you do this, you will live many years and your life will be satisfying. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Then you will find favor with both God and people and you will earn a good reputation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. At the end of the day, do I lay my head on the pillow and say, Lord, I wanted to see you in your word and I wanted to obey what I saw. Not because I'm earning salvation, but because you've given me everything. Your words truly are life. That is success. That, as a Christ follower, we call each other up to and into and to go out and do. In Acts chapter 2, we also see that that success is dependency and full reliance on God. See, this whole self-reliance thing is not the message of the Scripture. Genesis to Revelation should show us that we are not able to walk in our own strength. But because we're sinful and because our hearts are busted, we do the same thing. We run with the same struggle, which is why Jesus meets the same need. Paul made it really clear in his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. At the end of the day, where does your trust rest? Are you finding yourself going, Lord, please help me trust you more and more, or I got this? Are you finding yourself at the end of the day going, man, I'm really struggling with this whole control thing, but Lord, I know you're good and I want to hand you more, so just teach me to do it. Help me see your faithfulness in the word. Help me see your faithfulness to your bride. Help me see your faithfulness to the church. Help me see, help me see those things so I want to let go of more and more of me so that you, like last week, we talked about Jesus increasing as we decrease. It is, a, is it a joy to boast about the power of God or the power of me? And I love Paul's way of, of, of ministry. Because in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually starts to give a defense of the gospel in the least likely resume way. Listen to what he does. Starting in chapter, two, uh, chapter 11, verse 24. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, hit with rocks, guys, come on. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I am not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas kept guards at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through a window in a city wall to escape from him. Now, I can totally see the people that want to surround Paul and encourage him in this moment going, look, Paul, we get the whole weakness thing, but that was a little much. Like, I would cut back on some of that because you're making our message look crazy. You're making the message look so strange. And this is where I can see Paul go, all right, stop talking and lower me down. Keep lowering me, man. Keep lowering me down in that basket. Shut up with all your, we need to make it look one way when it's not. Keep lowering me down in that basket. Paul actually had the ability to do the other side of the boasting, and he does actually in Philippians chapter 3. He plays the world's game of success for one moment, and then he turns it. In Philippians 3, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Boom! And I thought it was all garbage. When was the last time you heard somebody boast that them having two or three Compassion International kids, having been to Africa, dug wells, having been on many mission trips, and heck, you even danced to a Casting Crows song with a dowel rod in your hand. How many times... Have you heard someone say that all of that was rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ? The church has bought into the world's view of success. When we're boasting in our our things and in our stuff and what we've done, we actually communicate an anti-gospel. Paul saying, look, if you want to boast, let's, let's do that for a second, but then I need to put things in perspective. Christ and him crucified is all that matters. That I would even be included in the family of God, the kingdom of God, being transferred from darkness into light, not by my works, but by what Jesus has done on the cross and his death and resurrection purchased for me a success that I could not buy on my own if I tried. Francis Chan says it this way, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Who determines what matters? The world or the creator of the world? Who determines? 
And for the Christ follower, at the end of the day, success is allowing God to speak, desiring to hear what he has to say, and obeying it. That's the people we want to be, knowing that he has saved us. A last result may be kind of anti-culture as well. (laughs) But success at the end of the day for a Christ follower is desiring to see the burdens lifted off the shoulders of others. It's desiring to see the weights of this world that keep people down lifted. Having an intentional desire to plan ahead to meet the needs of others. That means if it's cutting a bill so that in a month or so, if somebody does randomly ask you for help, you're able to help. It means being willing to be interrupted when we're on our way to something else. One of the ways we push back against this culture's view of comfort is actually caring about others. One of the ways we actually begin to have a right perspective of our comfort level is to actually see others go, whoa, that is a disaster, and I can step in and help with that. Success for the Christ follower is looking to and paying attention to and meeting the needs of others. And you know what's so awesome about it is we don't have to do that alone. This room full of this people can do a lot of good. I feel overwhelmed when I hear that somebody can't keep their light bill on because I can't pay their light bill, but I get 10 people together, we can pay that light bill and give them grocery money and give them gas money. Success in the eyes of a believer is have I lived in attempt to lift the burdens of others? A Christ follower's definition of success involves finding joy in people not things. As the band comes and we close our time together, I was reading a pastor's view and he was te- he's writing these letters to pastors and one of the things that he said was, don't try to be successful. Expend your energy in seeking to be faithful. Success at the end of the day in the eyes of God is not the results that you're able to garner on your own, but did you walk with him? Did you go with him? Did you let him guide your steps? And if you fell flat on your face, who cares? Because he walked with us. He journeyed with us. He goes before us. The world's version of success would actually look at that cross and tell us it was the biggest failure in the world. The cross suggests, and the world would suggest, that the cross was the biggest mistake in history, that Jesus failed to accomplish his mission And that Christ followers, you got nothing. But for those of us who are being saved, we know it is the very power of God. We know that that, on that cross, the Lord did more good for us than we will ever experience in this physical world until he returns. We know that on the cross, he reconciled People who are failures, people who are broken, people who have worked against God, he reconciled and brought us back into relationship with him, not by our works, by what Jesus did. So the beauty of the good news is you're not just looking at Jesus to be your example of success. You're looking at Jesus to be your success. Like, you're not just going home to go, oh man, I gotta be more like Jesus, I gotta try harder, I gotta... No, when you go home, you need to ask the question, is Jesus my success? This is what it means to be hidden in Christ. 
I am no longer wearing the labels of the world. Parents, you got to stop letting Facebook define you as a successful or a terrible parent. You got to let Jesus define you. So this is what I mean when you go home and you say, is Jesus my success? All that I have, all that I'm defining myself by, is it found in Christ or is it some other way? And if it's some other way, man, let him cut those ties. Let him free you. Let him walk with you, lead you gently as he does so that you might know that there is no success apart from Christ. See, where I wore failure on my own, I now wear the phrase restored. Where I wore the phrase busted, I now wear whole. Where failure meant the end of the world to me because it was about me, now I can take risks. And if I fall flat on my face, I am not defined by that failure because I'm hidden in Christ. Do you know that? Where failure meant God's punishing me, now I can see failure as God forming himself in me. This is why the good news is so good. This is why it is the greatest message the world has never heard. And so as you go this morning, as we finish up, to understand that this is a gift and maybe it's time, and this is what we do as Christ followers, and, I, and, I, and for those of you that may be exploring the faith or checking things out, I just want you to understand there's something in the life of a believer called repentance. And repentance is a gift. It is not this one-time thing that you do as a non-believer or converting to Christianity. Repentance is something we walk with. Repentance is going, Jesus, where you say things about success, I have this view of success, but since you're God, I'm going to let you be Lord. I need to hand you my thoughts on success and let you redefine success for me. That's repentance. Me saying, Jesus, your thoughts, your ways over my thoughts and my ways. So this morning and for the following weeks, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to open this space here, here, wherever you want to just drop to our knees as Miss Sue is trying to teach our children that humility before the Lord is success. And I know for some of you, you may not be comfortable with moving, but there are times in my life I have just wanted to do something. I've wanted to get up and I've wanted to move and I've wanted to make a gesture of some kind to say, God, you're working on me, shape me and change me. And to, to be honest with you, the church was to be the place of repentance for all of us. When we hear the gospel, we get to respond to it. And it's in his kindness, he leads us and says, come on, come back. So we're going to open this space for you guys to use as you would. There'll be some elders and some gel leaders standing over there to pray for you. I'll be over here to pray for you if you want that. But if you just want to say, Lord, I want to do business and I want to hit my knees. I've been building my kingdom and I'm, I'm done with my kingdom. My kingdom is wrapping me up and trapping me and I'm king over nothing. These things are king over me. Jesus, I need you to be king. So if that's you this morning, feel free to move through this space to be prayed for, to spend time alone. Uh, there is a cross if you'd like to kneel at the foot of it, if you need that sim symbolism, if you need that direction. But we want to be a place where repentance is allowed. Repentance is on your knees. It's a humbling position. It is not a proud position, trust me. Because <laughs> when you hit your knees, people are going to be like, oh, that person's dealing with their stuff. We should all be dealing with their stuff. 
Lord, we just beg you to move in our hearts, to move in our minds, to move in us, to see that you are good and that, Lord, at the end of the day, to be able to say we longed for your word, to obey it, we long to be truly dependent on you, and we long to see the needs of others met. Holy Spirit, you'll take care of the results. Let us be your people. It's in your name we pray.